Eros deute molusimeles done, glucupicron amacanon orpiton. Welcome to Sweet Bitter, a podcast where we investigate the truth and controversy surrounding Sappho, her life, the Isle of Lesbos, and her relevance today. We're your hosts, Ellie Brigida and Lisa Shallot. This episode, we're continuing our discussion from last episode about the recent discovery of Sappho's poems. This topic is so huge that this is the second part of what will actually be three episodes now. And we promise this is the end. We're not going to make it four. We're not going to make it five because it was supposed to be one and now it's three, but it's just so much. There's a lot of content Absolutely. and we just want to give it all to you. Yes. We don't want to leave you wanting more. I mean, we did leave you with a one month break after a cliffhanger, but here we are. Uh, as we do each episode, we're going to start off with one of Sappho's fragments chosen by our resident poet, Elise. Stay tuned until the end of the episode to hear our own version of the poem as a song. You'll recall that in our last episode, I read you Anne Carson's 2002 translation of Fragment 58. The thing that's so exciting about today's episode is that more of Fragment 58 was discovered in 2004. So now- More? Yes, more of it. <laughs> yes. So, and more uh, is more, as we know, so it's surely a good thing, right? Uh, yes. So the 2002 version, you remember, was really airy and open, fragmented. This version's much more, um, all, the, all the blanks have been filled in. So I'm going to read you Ann Carson's 2004 post-discovery translation of Fragment 58. Here we go. You children, be zealous for the beautiful gifts of the violet-lapped muses and for the clear, song-loving lyre. But my skin, once soft, is now taken by old age. My hair turns white from black. And my heart is weighed down, and my knees do not lift, that once were light to dance as fawns. I groan for this, but what can I do? A human being without old age is not a possibility. There is the story of Titanus, loved by dawn with her arms of roses, and she carried him off to the ends of the earth when he was beautiful and young, even so was he gripped by white old age. He still has his deathless wife. That's the end? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, did it leave you wanting more? Yeah, I was like, what about the wife? What is it? <laughs> um, well, I also asked too, because we have a song coming up, as we do. Always. And the translation for the song is a bit longer, if I'm correct. Yeah, so we used a different translation of this poem for the song than, we, than, than I just read. And there's actually a little bit of scholarly debate around where the poem should end. So the version that we used is a little bit longer than this version. Um, and uh, that's the beauty of translation, which we'll be getting into in a, a future episode. We talked about the poem of Titanus with Liv, right? Yeah, the myth of Titanus that gets mentioned in this poem, it's kind of important to understand it, is that um, Titanus was this guy, he was, a, he was a human being beloved by the goddess Dawn. And so the goddess Dawn went to Zeus to ask him uh, to make Titanus immortal so that he could you know, be with her, an immortal goddess. And she forgot to ask Zeus to give Titanus eternal youth. So Titanus lived forever. He's immortal, but he kept getting older and older and older until he was, you know, feeble and, and senile and locked up in a room and forgotten about. So it's, it's kind of a tragedy. And so Sappho's comparing herself to Titanus saying, no one can escape old age. Even Titanus, who, you know, tried to have a shortcut via a goddess, even he got old and I'm getting old. I can't dance anymore. Um, so this is a, this is uh, this this poem is commonly known as the old age poem of Sappho. Um, I have a question for both of you. <laughs> do you want to live forever, <laughs> or do you want eternal youth? I want both. Or both. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what is eternal youth without immortality? Or okay, what if you were young forever until you died? Oh, you mean like young until you're like a hundred or however long people live uh, yeah. for? Yeah. Oh. Or eternal i don't or know you, were, oh, you live forever but you keep getting old i have such a problem with mortality it's been like I, I had time off for the holidays and then i started thinking about my own mortality like i get fomo about life after my life you know i think i want the sappho option where i die but my work lives on forever oh yeah yes. i mean what is this podcast for if not immortality in oh our own fun way? story exactly. this is i have a fun piece of trivia for you guys about old age too about this poem because the 2004 
uh, bits of it that were discovered are actually the oldest Sappho artifact ever found. They date from the early 3rd century BC, which was only 300 years after she was alive. So the old age poem is the oldest artifact of Sappho's. That's amazing. That is very cool. Well, there was some there was some people who didn't like it very much, right? Like, didn't Anne Carson say that she liked the poem better before the new parts of it was discovered? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. In in her in her notes with the translation I just read you, you can read this in the New York books. Maybe we can put the link in the show notes. Um, she she says she liked the old fragmented version better because it was more uncontainable and more open-ended and interesting she said the old version just had fawns wandering around the middle but now they're in the new version they're relegated to a metaphor you know uh, my, <laughs> my knees used to be as light as fawns and and so now it's been made kind of boring so um ann carson she's she's so smart and, and in these notes she actually like references rupaul and quotes rupaul to, how to does understand. she bring rupaul into it <laughs> She's talking about how Sappho uses really plain language in this poem. She uses really concrete adjectives and kind of stock Greek epithets um, for her descriptions. And so she quotes RuPaul saying about clothes, we're all born naked and the rest is just drag. And so she she then says, (laughs) so she says Sappho's putting us into the the problem of, of life and death in this really like naked way and just kind of letting us like experience the way time pours out of this poem um, without any kind of ornamentation. I love that. I also do feel like if we juxtaposed my response to last week or to last episode, the fragmented poem with this, this week's, (laughs) I also sort of agree with Carson. Like the fragmented poem left me like, (sighs) like, yeah, it's like there was so much space. I think space is really the like correct word. That you're like, wow. Yeah. And this, this one, I was like, oh, that's it? <laughs> <laughs> this, one's, this one's a lot more Sapphire. direct, right? Like, oh, that's it. That's Ellie it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, is, this, this says a lot about how we experience Sappho in, in her fragmentation as part of the beauty and the joy and the excitement. A lot of people point out that, that this poem sounds so much more direct. It has something to say. And some people have even speculated that it's a didactic poem, that it was meant for her to, to, to sing to young girls to kind of teach them about like, hey, take advantage of your youth because you're going to get old like me. Look at my white hair. And so that that does seem kind of less. I don't know. I, yeah, I, I might be with you, Ellie, and, and with Anne Carson on the like fragmentation is inherently exciting. Filling in those spaces. I agree. And so you spoke to Sandra Boringer, who we've spoken to before about this poem, and she had, she had some really interesting, different interpretations of this poem. Yeah, Sandra, um, she's a Greek historian and Sappho scholar and professor, and she's, uh, she gave this beautiful reading of the poem as not about old age at all. So um, let me play y'all her, uh, the, the clip of her explaining this, and you'll hear it um, as translated by our, from, from the French by our friend of the pod, Annie McCarthy. What is fascinating in this poem is that the symptoms that could be those of old age are also the symptoms of Eros. So for me, this poem is not at all about age. It's really a poem about love that might make you think at one point that we are old because we all we have all the symptoms that we are weak and we can't dance anymore. And if we have a close look at this poem, Sappho says, I can't dance anymore. And at the end of the poem, I pick it up again and I continue to dance and, dance and sing. So it's a recovery. It's Eros who comes back and gives energy to sing and dance. This kind of poem is to be heard together in public. Uh, we have to be careful because in the sung poems, we have a person who says, uh, I. Um, it's usually sung by... Um, a choir group. So this I, it's you, it's me, when we're singing for the laps of the song, I am Sappho, you are Sappho. We are all Sappho. (laughs) Do you not have chills right now? (laughs) Well, I'd love to, like, obviously we talk a lot about Sappho and Eros, and I feel like we're like, oh, this poem doesn't really fit in. But I actually really like the interpretation of, oh, yeah, it does. She's just using another metaphor for Eros. Also, just Sandra speaks so eloquently. It's beautiful. She does. Damn the French in their beautiful language. Yeah. <laughs> Je suis Sappho, vous êtes Sappho. It's so nice. It's so beautiful. 
Well, thank you so much, Elise, for sharing that with us. Um, Anytime. We're going to let you go and get into it. Before we get into the episode today, we want to remind you that as in the last episode, everything in the upcoming podcast is alleged as it is now. Please take this as a disclaimer for the whole episode. Everything we touch on has been reported in reputable news outlets or academic journals, and we're simply relaying the info. So let's do a quick recap. In 2014, renowned papyrologist Dirk Obink announced a discovery of Sappho's poetry that was sketchy to say the least. There were several different provenance stories which had people in the papyrology world asking questions about where they had come from, since if we don't know the origins for sure, they could be looted. Scholars were also concerned that Obank had ties with the Greens, wealthy evangelicals who owned Hobby Lobby, and were collecting massive amounts of ancient artifacts for their Museum of the Bible. We'll let Ariel Sabar, the Atlantic journalist who reported on the story, take it from here, followed by papyrologist Malcolm Choate. What he's now under investigation for by the police is selling biblical fragments from the Oxyrhynchus collection to the Greens. So in other words, he's selling fragments from the collection of Oxford he's charged with overseeing to the Green family, and they're largely biblical fragments of the sort that they want, and he's, actually, and, and he's been accused of falsely dating them to the first century, which would make them very, very exciting and unprecedented. So, um, but they don't actually date to the first century. So he, he lies he lies about the provenance of biblical fragments. He's, he's allegedly, allegedly, I should say allegedly stealing from Oxford. It's important also to note that Dirk Goldman denies doing any of this. So given this is his due, he denies doing it. But the accusation and what police are now investigating and what he's been detained for questioning on in, in Oxford is selling biblical fragments from his own collection to the Greens, lying about their provenance in order to launder the provenance, saying they, they come from an anonymous owner, an anonymous family, and selling them to the Greens. The Greens paid him something like, uh, again, $48 million for those. These were discoveries I made in the course of reporting the story uh, about all of this for the Atlantic Magazine in uh, June of, uh, of this year. And so the fact that Dirk Gomick is now accused of faking provenance to sell biblical fragments to the Greens raises questions about whether he might also be faking the provenance of the Sappho fragments. Now, there's no indication, and I want to be clear, there's no indication that the Saf- these Sappho fragments come from the Oxyrhynchus collection. There, and I've asked that question, could it be that these were discovered in the you know, late 19th century, early 20th century, part of this collection at Oxford, and he stole them, allegedly brought them to this London owner of the Greens? There's no evidence for that, and that's, there's no accusation along those lines. The, the larger question that was raised is, is he putting out a fake story about where these come from to, to disguise their actual origins? So people say, okay, well, what's up with the Sappho then? Because this is the same person that is now almost highly likely, if not proven, to have stolen papyri from the Oxyrhynchus collection and tried to sell them, or actually sold them, to other people. And people started picking holes in the provenance narrative, the many collection histories that Obinked put forward for the Sappho Papyrus. People said, well, you said it was found in 2012, but here's a photo of it from 2011. But you've said that it came from here, but that's obviously impossible. More people started talking about the authenticity of the piece. So we in papyrology are now primed to see fakes. Of course, us, because we work on fakes here at Macquarie. But we're very careful not to just wildly accuse things of being fake, because overwhelmingly things is a genuine article, and we need to develop criteria for discussing whether they're fake or not. But a lot of people out there now in the papyrological and the general ancient history community just have a hair trigger for saying things are fake. This is a bit dodgy. Must be a fake. We don't know where this came from. Probably a fake. And so some people said, well, we don't know where this came from. So how do we know this new Sappho poem is authentic? And other people said, what are you talking about? To fake this, you'd, you'd have to have, like, you'd have to be one of the world's best Greek scholars. You'd have to know classical, archaic poetry intimately. You'd have to have access to papyrus, know how to make ink, and have a way to sell it. And you'd have to know, you'd have to be one of the world's best papyrologists again. And a number of said, yeah, but I, I can think of one person who takes all of those things. Like the person who actually propagated it. A number of people had also said, well, this poetry, is, this is not up to Sappho's standard. This doesn't look very good compared to the rest of her poetry. I'm sure some of your other like um, interviewees might have said that the Brothers poem looked to some Sappho experts as if it was sort of poor quality Sappho. So he's saying that because this poem doesn't seem as good as Sappho's usual stuff, some people think it might be faked. Savage. So does that mean we think that the old age poems... She's no. not going to that. It's just like, it's not good. We don't claim it. If only it was like that, hey? Like every bad thing you ever did. The old age poem is good. I think we're just saying that f- we like the fragmentation. 
That's all. Yes. I mean, this was echoed by a few of the classicists we spoke to regarding the brothers' poem. Uh, you might remember Marguerite Johnson, who was from one of our earlier episodes. Here's what she had to say. So there's an ethical problem about the brother poems in terms of the provenance, but there is also the problem that some Sappho scholars have, which is, are they authentic? Because if the provenance is sketchy and there's little information about how they actually came to be in the collection at Oxford, have they been dated, you know, definitively? So the script, the the physical artefacts, fact on which they were written. Um, So some people are a bit cautious about the authenticity of them, mostly because of the controversy around where they actually came from. Perhaps Sappho could have had an off day. But when people started saying, well, it wouldn't be possible to forge this, as someone that studies forgery, uh, that's where I step in and say, no, no, no. It's very possible to make something that fools experts because we had over 100 fragments of what we thought were Dead Sea Scrolls that fooled the world's top scholars in Dead Sea Scrolls and are now absolutely, certainly fake. All the ones that came on the market in the last 20 years are almost certainly fake or the vast majority of them. We look at the Sappho papyrus in the photos, which is all it's got, and it doesn't look like a lot of our forgeries that we know because it doesn't have lots of the tells in many ways, but that could just mean that the forger was much better because there's also the opportunity and motive and, of course, financial opportunity, conceivably. But that discussion can never be solved except really by really close examination of the original. We're probably not going to get that because who even knows where the Sappho papyrus is now? All right, so people know so little about where this poem came from that they're actually starting to think it might not even be real? Yeah, it's uh, it's a mess. All the scholars are asking questions about this brother's poem and whether it's forged or stolen or what to do about the fact that they really couldn't trust Obing anymore. And then papyrologist and classicist Mike Sampson and his colleague Anna Ullig broke huge ground in November 2019 with a big discovery. Before I let Mike explain it, because he'll do a way better job than me, I just want to remind you that Obing's very first provenance story was that the new Sappho came from mummy cartonage, which, as we discussed last episode, is basically paper mache, owned by a high-ranking German officer, but then eventually said that the first story wasn't true and replaced it with a bunch of other provenance stories. After the allegations against Aubank were aired and came to light last summer involving the Egypt Exploration Society's collection of Oxyrhynchus papyri, I was asked to author uh, a piece for Eidolon's special issue on papyrus thefts, just about the Sappho controversy and the history and I did this with the help of, uh, in collaboration with a colleague at the University of California, Davis, Anna Ulig, wonderful scholar, a great friend. And we wrote up the, essentially the history of the provenance of P. Saf Aubink, which is its technical name, you know, and the different, the changing, the evolving stories and the controversy that had surrounded it. And on the day after that article went live, I received an email from a scholar named Uta Vortenberg-Kagan, who was at the time a research curator at the American Numismatic Society. She had just stepped down from the position of executive director of the society, position she had held for 20 years, essentially. Prominent figure and numismatics involves ancient coinage and is the study of coinage and has all of the same issues of collecting and provenance that the papyrological world does. And in fact, she had been trained as a papyrologist at Oxford, so she was inherently sort of interested in the story. And in her email to me, she said, have you seen the Christie's brochure with the pictures of it coming out of mummy cartonage? I sort of scratched my head. I said, no, I haven't seen the brochure. And I quickly sort of checked all of the other, uh, you know, discussion on blogs and tried to figure out if anybody had seen it. And as best as I could tell, no one had. And so we began a correspondence and we had several phone conversations and she shared with me this brochure that she had received uh, from an acquaintance and inside it were pictures of the alleged discovery of this, uh, this, this papyrus. The first picture um, that caught my attention of the extraction has a, a bulk of papyrus lying in a ceramic basin next to a painted mummy cartonnage panel. And so I'm looking at this and I'm saying, this is the original story. This is the, the version, the first version that Abig published in the Times Literary Supplement and which Bettany Hughes had reported in, uh, in the Sunday Times. And I said to myself, I wonder if I can find out where this cartonnage came from. And I started looking at auction results, Sotheby's, Christie's, Bonham's, and basically looking through old auctions and their cartonnage lots to see if it popped up. And I found it. It had been sold at Sotheby's in, I think, 2008. And the thing that sort of leapt off the page at me is on the Sotheby's auction results, it indicated the provenance 
for this piece of mummy cartonnage. And it had previously belonged, it was claimed, to an individual named Reiner Kriebel, who had acquired it in Cairo in the 19, I think it was in the 1960s. Reiner Kriebel arose to the rank of Oberst, which is German for essentially colonel, during the Second World War. Here was the high-ranking German officer that Bettany Hughes had written about in the Sunday Times. And so what I realized here is that I had visual evidence of this original story, which had been sort of swept under the rug. So if Mike found evidence that Obing's first story was true, isn't that good for Obing? Yeah, that's what Elise and I thought when we were talking to him too. But because Obink had said the first story wasn't true and then replaced it with all these other stories, it maybe still isn't good for Obink. And also, Mike found out that the story couldn't have actually been true at all. Yeah, it essentially, it wasn't a mistake um, that it had been deliberately concocted, is my conclusion, by the owner of the papyrus in order to provide a provenance for a papyrus that otherwise didn't have one. The problem was that if the papyrus came from this mummy panel, which was the original story, that was just patently impossible because mummy cartonnage does not contain papyrus in the time that the papyrus was said to have been written. There was simply a disconnect. It's a third century CE papyrus, and the mummy cartonnage dates to the Ptolemaic period, sort of before Christ. And so there's hundreds of years in between. The, the story, this is why it was called out, immediately by, by scholars who said, you know, how can you get a third century papyrus out of, out of mummy cartonnage? It doesn't make sense. And that's why the story was essentially retracted and swept under the rug. And a year later, we get this new version involving domestic or industrial cartonnage, which retains the key idea, right? It came out of cartonnage, but sort of gets rid of the, the problematic elements, the, the Ptolemaic mummy bit and the high-ranking German officer bit, uh, and essentially sort of moves on to a new version of the story. The story involving mummy cartonnage was concocted and used, I think, in an attempt to sell the papyrus as a way to provide cover. Where did it come from? Well, it came from mummy cartonnage. And the mummy cartonnage has this provenance. And that's where Kriebel comes in, and that's where Kriebel is so important. And the fact that he is said to have acquired the cartonnage in the 1960s in Cairo is important because it brings it back prior to that UNESCO convention from 1970, right? Ethically speaking, this is an object that is in the clear and is admissible for, for scholarly study. But it couldn't have come out of the cartonnage. And so that story is clearly bogus. And instead of, you know, accepting the idea that it was an accident, you know, what the Christie's brochure shows me is, in fact, no, these, these pictures were staged in order to sort of uh, present that, that version of the story. And when that version of the story was sort of swept under the rug, well, there's still the pictures that reflect it. There are photos in the brochure that purport to show the Sappho poems pre-extraction next to this mummy mask or mummy panel, I should say. Is it a mummy mask or is it part of the mummy case? The cardinage was used for both, but again, that's part of the evolving story. A mummy case panel next to sort of a wadded up piece of papyrus that suggests that it was once part of cardinage and that, that it came from this panel that it's next to. But the date of the photos, it doesn't work with what else is known about the chronology of when the extraction is said to have happened. We know that those photos reflect the first provenance story, not the evolving one. So this brochure was put together at a time before Dirk Obink or whoever was involved in the sale. And it's clear that Dirk Obink was involved at least in advising the owner because a lot of his language appears there. That the brochure was prepared at a time in which people did not think that the provenance story would be questioned. This may be what the sale never went through or enough questions were raised about that sellers were like, I'm not going to spend $15 million for something with, with this many question marks. It, it shows that there was an effort to obfuscate and lie about provenance through the Christie's brochure. It at least appears to, to show that. And in fact, Mike Sampson, the classicist in his peer-reviewed article in the Bureau of the American Society of Papyrologists that just came out, he uses two terms for the basically two classes of provenance story that Dirk Obink or his associates have told. The first story he, that Dirk Obing told, Mike Sampson calls the original provenance fiction. And the second story that Dirk Obing told this class calls the revised provenance fiction. And again, these are, this is a very esteemed class at the University of Manitoba. These aren't my words. Um, so he has studied the evidence. He's looked at the brochure. He's also looked at the other, other stories. He believes that both of the provenance stories are bogus. My own reporting, he, that basically corroborates my own reporting for The Atlantic. And so the brochure suggests that at a time 
this papyrus was being groomed for sale for $15 million at a time when Dirk Obik was also spending a lot of money um, that a lot of people think were surprised that any classicist would be able to spend, including purchasing a giant dilapidated castle in Waco, Texas, at, at a time when Dirk Obik was thinking of potentially leaving Oxford for Baylor, uh, where Waco is. So he, you know, to have, to have someone come and buy a castle and then, and then be willing to spend a few million dollars rehabbing it when you're just a classicist, not a business owner, a CEO. Uh, again, people at Baylor are like, how that? What? Why is he? Why? How could he afford to buy? And why does he decide to buy a castle of all things in Waco, Texas? Um, and so you know, now 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 that people know that he was selling allegedly stolen papyri from his own collection at Oxford to the Greens, these biblical papyri. Um, that, that might explain some of the money, but if he were in fact behind or, or if he were in fact able to receive a cut uh, of the Sappho sale through Christie's, that might explain another source of income for him. Again, these are allegations at this point. We need to be very clear about that. But there's certainly a circumstantial case that the government was involved in some way in the preparation of the Sappho for sale through Christie's. We're going to take a quick break to hear from some sponsors and we'll be right back. So, Lisa, I heard there was a castle for clothes on in, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, it's up for sale. Should we should we go in on it? You know, we're raking in just so much money. <laughs> <laughs> oh, totally. Man. Let's I go mean, buy that one. Is... Who doesn't have money lying around for a castle? I mean, all we have to do is find some Sappho fragments. And Great. And get a castle. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> I mean, that obviously all sounds pretty damning. Yeah, and Ariel Sabah broke another new key part of the story in his Atlantic article from just this past summer, the one we first saw, since he discovered yet another fake provenance story for the Sappho. So the Green Collection had this kind of larger-than-life head of collections named Scott Carroll, who has a PhD in ancient history, then became a consultant to evangelical Christians seeking to amass large collections of Bibles. And he's hired by the Greens to head up their, their collecting spree. Some people describe him as a circus act. You know, he's very colorful. He's very good at sort of getting people excited about papyri. So in, in January of 2012, he goes to Baylor University to put on a, a demonstration for their classics department about how exciting it is to be able to dissolve a mummy mask and pull out all these amazing pieces of, of papyri from antiquity. And all these students are in the, the room, all these classicists from Baylor are in the room in the, in the classics department lounge. He puts on this demonstration where he, he fills the sink with warm water, pours some palm oil soap into it, dunks a mummy mask into it, and then begins moving the mummy mask around in the warm water and then pulling out fragments of papyri and laying them out on pieces of paper towel to dry. There's a younger classicist at Baylor and he's looking at these tiny pieces of, of papyrus that are coming out of this mummy mask. And he's like, these are four-line stanzas in the Aeolic dialect. This looks like Sappho. I mean, he was, this is the kind of thing that like is like, mind-blowing for a classicist to be looking down at papyrus that had just emerged from some mysterious place. In this case, it seemed to have been pulled from the inside of the mummy mask. And you realize that I'm looking at Sappho and the room just becomes standing room only. You know, word is racing through the classics department. One professor is in tears. I mean, it's like this mind-blowing thing. This scholar, Simon Burris of Baylor, says, I was gobsmacked. Like, he, he said, I think I said something like, not without the moly. I mean, it was like, he was just like, it, it was my, it was, it was gobsmacking for him. And he, here's this young scholar who believes he has made a major Sappho discovery. Here are 20 pieces of Sappho that no one's ever seen before that have just been pulled out of a mind mask. I'm the one who identified them. And everyone in the room is really going nuts over this. I mean, if I was there, I'd be running around the room crying. But yeah, I mean, it sounds really exciting. It does. And so this was yet another provenance story for the Sappho. But Ariel pointed out to us that it never leaked out at the time. The big discovery of Sappho at Baylor never became public, which started raising suspicions with people at Baylor. Because, like, I mean, you'd want to share the news, right? So they were wondering why the Greens were keeping the Baylor discovery so quiet. And then the scholar who identified the Sappho in the mummy mask started wondering why they were so easy to identify. It almost seemed, like, too good to be true. Uh, like, how easy it was to tell that they were Sappho. So he started wondering, were they really being pulled out of the mummy mask? Or did Scott Carroll just slip them in there to stage the discovery and create a legitimate provenance story? The head of Green's collection, Scott Carroll, this colorful scholar, was talking about, did he know they were there beforehand or did he plant them? And in the course of my reporting, I actually wound up confronting Scott Carroll and saying, look, there are a lot of people who, who really wonder whether those fragments of Sappho were ever really in that mummy mask or whether you maybe put them there. And to Scott Carroll's credit, for the first time he acknowledged to me, he's like, 
Yeah, I, I pretended to pull them out of the, mat, the mummy mask. His reasoning was that I, I wanted to demonstrate how exciting it could be to dismantle a mummy mask and all the exciting things you could find. And not really being sure of what I might find that actual day, I decided to mix in some things from the green collection that I knew were exciting just to demonstrate to people how exciting it could potentially be. His quote to me was, at the time, I didn't feel it was deceptive. There are other questions raised about Scott Carroll's conduct, but including the fact that he made up a bunch of things on his resume that got him fired by the Greens very shortly after this presentation. So you have Scott Carroll, who's working closely with Dirk Obink as the top papyrus consultant, who has now been exposed as having planted Sappho in a mummy mask that it didn't come from. You talk about laundering in a figurative sense. So it's a literal laundering of provenance. You're putting Sappho, and by the way, if, if you're an archaeologist or you're a lover of Sappho's work, can you imagine how you feel that someone is taking a very rare piece of Sappho, dunking it in a sink in a, in a university lounge with palm olive soap, and then pulling it out again? Conservationists, this must be giving you fits because this is not how you treat very rare archaeological objects. I mean, the ink won't necessarily fade, you know, like... Probably the papyrus and the writing on top of it will be okay, but I mean, it's like, really, you're going to dunk one-of-a-kind piece of Sappho in a sink just to, to fake a demonstration for you and for students. So that also raises a lot of questions. And so now you've got this other provenance story that, that no one's ever heard of before. It just feels really irresponsible. <laughs> just, let's just dump it all in the sink and just... <laughs> I know. I'm like, and I, I said I'd be crying of joy, but like if the Sappho got ruined. Oh my goodness. I'm not Can't. even, there are some like clothes I own that I wouldn't even do that with. And then exactly. it's just this ancient papyrus. But I mean, at this point, I'm losing track of all these fake provenance stories. Do we have any idea where this Sappho actually came from? So I'm going to let Ariel explain that. But first, I just want to briefly point out that he mentions a big fragment of Sappho as well as some smaller bits. And this is just because the 2014 discovery was actually one large sheet of papyrus as well as a few other smaller fragments. The other thing I was able to discover, again, thanks to the sources I was able to develop, is that, in fact, the Sappho that were pulled out of the mask were visible in photos taken two months before as part of a sales invoice. And this was a sales invoice for papyri that was acquired by the Greens, the Hobby Lobby family, and acquired by them from a Turkish dealer named Yakov Exioglu, who scholars suspect of trafficking illicit papyri. And the Greens have acknowledged that they did in fact acquire the, the smaller bits of papyrus, not, not the large Sappho with new tones, but the smaller bits of papyrus containing Sappho from this Turkish dealer several weeks before Scott Carroll fakes their discovery in a mummy mask at Baylor. And this Turkish dealer who I interviewed denied, he claims that he was the source of all of the Sappho, both the Sappho that, that Dirk Obink winds up publishing the two new poems and the smaller bits of papyrus that were extracted at Baylor. So he says, both of those come from my family. But when again, when I asked him to, to document and corroborate that they came from his family rather than being looted, he wasn't particularly helpful. He also claimed that the story about that either the, the Sappho being sold at Christie's was a fake story. He told me that that was made up. And in fact, they didn't come from Christie's at all. And I said, well, then what about the story that they were pulled out of Cardinage, whether they came out of the demonstration at Baylor or somewhere else? And he said, well, no, that, that also was stitched. We folded the Sappho together in such a way you could take pictures of it to make it look like it came from Cardinage, but they, weren't, they didn't come from Cardinage. They were just always loose papyri. Now, this Turkish dealer isn't the most credible person in the world. He's also acknowledged telling me lies. So, he may have his own axe to grind. What's clear from, from both his story and other documented pieces of evidence is that he, he, in fact, was the seller of the smaller bits of Sappho to the Green family, and that he is denying either that they were sold through Christie's or that they were ever part of a mummy mask or, or any other kind of cardinals, which punctures a huge hole through the story that Dirk Obink has told about where these papyri come from. So if you bought your artifacts from this Turkish dealer, you'd want to cover it up because it wouldn't be legal or ethical to get them from this guy. Exactly. We learn more about this dealer from Roberta Matza, an ancient historian at the University of Manchester, who has done a ton of academic detective work on the Obbing story and reported about all of it in her blog, Faces and Voices. In fact, Roberta was one of the first academics to start looking into the Sappho provenance after Obbing's announcement of the discovery in 2014. She was suspicious right from the beginning, and she did some incredible work tracking down Exiaglu. So I started investigating 
I was very upset that the academic uh, who gave the announcement was uh, very reluctant in giving us uh, documents and proofs that um, these papyri were legally sourced. And then I also dis discovered that there were already, you know, uh, some papyrologists working on this, but I discovered myself the world of the internet and eBay and other means that now these uh, strange <laughs> figures like this famous uh, Jakub Exioglu have uh, to, you know, sell their material around. I was pestering everyone from Dear Cobbing down to Scott Carroll, everyone. So I was bombarding people with questions and things. Then completely by chance, and I've uh, accounted this in some of my, you know, online uh, interventions. I was here in Italy for Easter, mainly living with my mother. And I was very bored and I decided to start a project that was, you know, checking on eBay how many papyri um, were on offer in the course of a year. At the beginning, I thought, yes, let's quantify how many papyri are on offer in the course of a year. And as soon as I started, I realized that uh, this uh, account, uh, which at that time was called eBuyer and was connected with these famous uh, Galatian fragments that was bought by the Green that I was somehow trying to tracking back, was active on eBay. So I decided excitement <laughs> in the boring life of the classicist. And I said, now I will pretend to be a buyer because I was obsessed with this Galatian fragment. That was this famous uh, fragment that uh, was on sale on eBay through this guy. And then uh, appeared all suddenly among the fragments of the green collection that uh, I saw at uh, a, an exhibition at the Vatican. So when I saw that the guy was again active, I, I thought, ah, I will discover something about him. I contacted him through the system of eBay, pretending, that was very stupid, pretending to be uh, a buyer. And he, wow. uh, he said, okay, so you are interested in my fragment, okay, let's move to WhatsApp. And I said, oh, of course. <laughs> And I gave him uh, my number, but he gave me his number. So immediately I, I thought, ah, I have his number. So let's Google his number. What, what can you do? I Googled his number and I discovered everything about him. Wow. Roberta is like Harriet the Spy. <laughs> Truthfully. <laughs> I just or Nancy Drew. I'm like any of them. Any of them. Veronica Mars. I just imagine her. You know how Veronica Mars always had those like ridiculous voices on the phone. I just imagine yes. Roberta putting on some weird accent talking to this guy on the phone. It's. I'm very very impressed. I'm so happy we got to talk to her as well. So Ariel reported in his Atlantic article that apparently Exiaglu first began selling antiquities on eBay in 2008. So he was in Egypt at the time, which is, again, not a good look for my guy because it's illegal to sell artifacts out of Egypt. That didn't stop Obing from working with him. So Ariel reported in the Atlantic that Obing actually introduced some of the Greens people to Exiaglu and encouraged them to buy from him. Then Roberta decided to do something. After a while, we started, you know, he started sending me material. So I discovered a lot. So I was thinking, should I write an article about this or what should I do? It was an issue because I was, it was clear that something was wrong. Uh, and I decided to go to the Art and Antiquities uh, uh, branch of Scotland Yard, which is based in London. And from them on, I think a big, uh, um, a sort of investigation started that connected also with the other investigations. So I went to the police in early summer 
And then I went to uh, this big conference uh, that is the uh, Society of Biblical Literature annual meeting and I pulled out what I had discovered and the green people were somehow nervous because they realized that, uh, you know, I was aware of a number of things. This is incredible who knew who knew i would i think give five as we talk about old age in this i would give five years off of my life to be at that conference where roberta spoke (laughs) (laughs) but i mean it didn't come without consequences so she was threatened at one point uh by exiaglu after one year that we were chatting at some point uh, the conversation stopped and then all suddenly uh, one day my phone rang and he started sending me threats out of the blue in my opinion why he is doing this now we were not uh, in conversation since a while so i contacted uh, of course the police it was a big uh, disaster somehow because of course since i was teaching uh, i had to think about i mean he had a base in London and he told me that he had a flat in London. So at some point uh, uh, we were thinking to meet. Uh, I mean, I was thinking, oh God, this guy could come and something might happen. So I was really frightened and preoccupied. So I alerted also the police. What I gathered is that he got nervous because the investigation led somewhere. Oh my goodness, a man threatening a woman in this day and age? God, it's it's horrible. It's so horrible. But but we do know that Exioglu sold the Sappho to the Greens, but we still don't know where he got it from. Still a lot of questions, but both Roberta and Ariel told us that everything points to them having been illicitly sold out of Egypt, allegedly. We just don't know where they come from, that there's just a question mark. But more likely, given this Turkish dealer's ties to Egypt and Syria, and, and actually Dirk Oving's ties to people who dealers with Syrian ties, if they're in fact authentic, that they could well be, be looted. Where in the world is Dirk Oving? <laughs> but really, where is he? Like, where, so where is he now? So he denies having any involvement in any of this and claims that he's been framed. So I'll let Ariel say more from here. After the Greens and Oxford discovered that something like 17 of the papyri that the Greens bought for the museum, for their own collection and potentially the Museum of the Bible, 17 of those were were stolen from Oxford. That was eventually reported to the police and the Thames Valley Police began an investigation. And then in March of this year, Dirk Obink was was arrested. And, and that means essentially that he was detained for questioning. The term that the police used when, they, when I spoke to them is he was arrested, detained for questioning on suspicion of theft and fraud. As of at least a few months ago, there were no charges filed yet. It remains under active investigation. So whether he winds up being charged or not in the alleged theft from Oxford, the biblical fragments, we won't know until that investigation is complete. It's still ongoing. Dirk Obink has been relieved of his teaching duties at Oxford. Okay, so we know where Dirk is, but what about the Greens? So Roberta told us that the Greens have introduced new policies for their purchasing and collecting. Okay, and what happened to the artifacts, the ones Eskiaglu sold the Greens and the ones Obink sold them? The Greens had to send back everything to Egypt that they had purchased from sketchy sources, which is 5,000 papyri the ones that lacked sufficient evidence of not having been stolen or looted, which is an enormous portion of their collection. So some of those are Sappho and they'll be going back to Egypt, but the biggest one is totally lost. We have no idea where it is. (laughs) Wait, we literally don't know where this huge Sappho discovery is. It's gone. It's missing. Yeah, apparently. So the Greens also returned the stolen Oxford fragments back to Oxford and asked Obing to refund them for what they paid him for them. So, so far he's paid back $100,000 of the $1.5 million worth of fragments. So he sold them 15 of Oxford fragments, according to Ariel. But Ariel reports that he then stopped communicating with them after this whole business broke out in the news last fall. So, you know, he just ghosted them, basically. (laughs) This is... Insanity. He might have to return his castle. <laughs> well, we're buying it. I mean, it's not it, like so it's, it'd be hard to find. Just go we're to We're buying it, so it's fine. 
It is a wild story, but it's really important to note that Obink is a famous case of this, but this is not the only case. Roberta really stressed this to us. This is a wild story, as you say, because of these many twists and whatever, but it's not really new. Academics involved in the antiquities trade, it's plenty of them. And I decided uh, that somehow you have to act. I mean, how many academics are collaborating with auction houses, providing uh, their own opinions on things? Uh, I was bothered about these. Uh, and of course, I was stubborn in a way because I, I thought that uh, it was also a matter of power, you know, and the arrogance of some people who think that they can do whatever they like. Like with Mr. Green, I was thinking, okay, if you are a millionaire, you are, the American system gives you the opportunity to build your own museum. And I'm fine with that, you know? If you are plenty of money and you want to open a museum, fine. But you can't go against the law. For me, it was just, you know, I felt that there was so much arrogance in that that I decided that I wanted to have clarity. And now that I have clarity, I am happy, you know? Yes, I mean, they had to send back uh, most of their Egyptian material to Egypt. 5,000 items are on the way to go back to Egypt. The Greens had to send stuff back? Wow, I didn't realize that. Yes, because uh, they had to admit, for instance, that many of their papyri were bought from Exioglu. What I wanted to achieve was for them to send back the material that they have illegally sourced. Of course, there is uh, the fact that they are sending back material is not only because uh, academics uh, made this noise, but also because, and most importantly, the police has acted. Okay, so if there are academics getting improperly involved in the antiquities trade all over the place, like Roberta says, then where does that leave the field of papyrology? What do they do next to prevent more cases like Ovink? So these questions are so massive. And as we said at the beginning of the episode, we didn't expect to make this a three-parter, but we thought that they were so important that we should dedicate a whole episode to them. That's what we're going to be talking about next episode. Well, I am really looking forward to that. In the meantime, here's a taste of what's to come on Sweet Bitter. Rather than being focused on the story of Dear Cobbing and all this drama that, of course, was the highlight of the media, for me, what was interesting was to study the wider environment and to ask myself and my colleague how could have happened Archaeology in Egypt still works on the footsteps of the colonizers. These were objects that contained people that meant something to other people who were buried the way we bury our dead relatives and friends and loved ones. And the hell they are just objects to be consumed for our like expanding knowledge or because they look nice. Thanks for listening to Sweet Bitter. Our next episode will be released on the 28th of January. As always, stick around until the end of the podcast to hear our original song for the post-2004 discovery, Fragment 58, written and performed by us. Quick note, today's song uses a different translation of the post-2004 discovery, Poem 58. So instead of the one by Carson that you heard, the lyrics from today's song come from J. Simon Harris's translation. You may have noticed that we've been using a lot of different translations of Sappho, mostly Carson and Rhea. We've had heaps of questions about which translations are better, and we will be discussing them more in an upcoming episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, rate and review us. It really helps other people find the show, especially written reviews on Apple Podcasts. Speaking of Apple Podcasts, we want to thank everyone who left us poem reviews. We love them so much. We want to keep the competition going, so we're going to draw the winner at the end of the series in the next fortnight's episode. So there's still time to get in and give us a review if you'd like. Thank you so much for our new patrons this week, Christine, Patrick, Liz, Michelle, Katie, and Liv. We're so grateful for your support. As always, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at SweetBitterPod or contact us on our website, SweetBitterPodcast.com. Sweet Bitter is an independent production by me, Ellie Brigida, Elise Knorr, and Lisa Charlotte. Our artwork is by Estella Illustrated. Music is by Lyra and Rhapsody. Special thanks to Old Songs, Roberta Mazza, 
Sandra Boringer, Annie McCarthy, Marguerite Johnson, Malcolm Choate, Mike Sampson, and Ariel Sabar for sharing their knowledge with us today. If you'd like to look into more of Roberta's work, you can find her blog, Faces and Voices, in our show notes. You can also follow her at Papyrology at Man, like A-T-M-A-N at the end. You can read more about our guests and where to find them on our website and in the About section. And now our song for Fragment 58, which features vocals from our poet in residence, Elise. Hold on, little girls, to the beautiful gifts of the violin muses, and cling to your love of the clear, sweet life, that lover of music. My skin was once supple and smooth, but now it's withered by and black but now it's faded and gray my heart grows heavy my knees too weary to stand upon the ones they could lift me and dance and could leap as light as a fawn and grown on and on but what else can I do no woman has lived without age and no man has eternal youth they say that Titaness was held in the arms of dawn who carried him to the ends of the earth so her love would live on though charm Leap as light as a fun. 